Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. This summer... Um, I've broken up the letter of James into 10 sections. We've got like 10 Shabbats before we're into the fall. So we thought that we would preach a series uh, through the book of James. And because we've broken it up into 10 sections, of course, conveyed to us from God's word. But we'll get some, uh, some ideas and thoughts conveyed to us from God's word. I'll be speaking probably seven of these messages. Andrew's going to have opportunity this summer. Uh, in light of his education experience and uh, opportunity uh, to preach maybe three, uh, three of the messages of this as well. So if you have your Bibles, we're turning to the book of James. The book of James is one of five messianic letters. That is to say, five letters that were particularly written to Jewish believers. That's not to say they only have relevancy to the Jewish believers, but that is their focus. Those five letters, of course, the book of Hebrews, which is really the book of the Jews, book to the Jews, written to Jewish believers to encourage them not to cast off their trust in Messiah and thereby to revert back into um, coming under the leadership of the Jewish leaders of their day because judgment is about to be outpoured on his people, on God's people, for the rejection, not the crucifixion, but the rejection of Messiah. As a result of the national rejection of of the Jewish Messiah by the Jewish leaders, the writer to these Jewish believers is telling them, look, make sure you follow Messiah and not the Jewish leadership of your day. What was the Jewish leadership of their day telling them? They were telling them, look, God will not allow our city and our nation to be destroyed or dispersed. God is not going to allow the temple to go down. God is not going to allow his people to be dispersed to the four corners of the earth. And what did Yeshua tell the Jewish believers? He told them that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its destruction is near. So the writer to the Hebrews is telling them, listen, do not listen to the Jewish leaders of your day who are telling you the temple will not go down, who are telling you judgment will not be outpoured upon us. Make sure you are faithful to your Messiah who's telling you that when Jerusalem is about to go under and you see the city surrounded by armies to flee to the mountains. Now, the letter of Hebrews was written around 66 AD, four years before the temple would be destroyed, Seventy, and about what would be six years, seven years before Israel would be dispersed. So, what the writer is concerned about is when they're given an opportunity to leave Jerusalem. 
to leave as Messiah had said to leave. And the interesting thing that happens historically, we can't go into this in great detail, is that when Titus with the 10th Legion of Rome came to Jerusalem and surrounded the armies for some inexplicable reason, the Romans never did this, but for some inexplicable reason, he lifted the siege and he allowed any Jews that wanted to leave Jerusalem could leave. And what Josephus, an unbelieving Jewish historian, tells us what Hegesippus, a Jewish-believing historian, tells us, and what Eusebius, a Gentile Christian historian, tells us, is all the Jewish believers in Jerusalem fled Jerusalem at that point and went to a place called Pella, which is in the northwestern area beyond the Golan Heights and into that region around Syria and Jordan today, and were spared. As a result of that exodus... Jewish people who believe in Yeshua from then to the present have been called Meshumidim, traitors. But we weren't traitors. We were following our Messiah rather than the voices of men. The writer to the Hebrews was writing his letter to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem particularly, challenging them to be ones who would respond to the words of their Messiah and to flee to the mountains so they would not get caught up in the judgment that would ensue. The two other letters, 1st, 2nd Peter, are also written to Jewish believers. The book of Jude is also written to Jewish believers. And Jude, by the way, his Hebrew name, Judah, was one of Yeshua's brothers, who's one of the family members of Joseph and Mary, or Joseph and Miriam. And then the book of James. These are all letters written to Jewish believers in the first century, and both of them deal with two particular issues— Persecution, book of Hebrews is uh, right on score with that, but persecution, particularly by your peers, and false doctrine by your peers. The, the inclination or the temptation, let's call it that, the temptation to reject Yeshua as Messiah and to cave under the persecution. That's what these letters focus their attention upon. Now, we're going to look at the book of James, and it opens up, interestingly enough, with drawing our attention to trials and tribulations and challenges. Now, the book of James is not really the book of James. The book of James is really the book of Jacob, Yaakov. In Greek, it's Yaakov, but it's Yaakov. So you ask, why do we call the Yaakovs in the New Testament Jameses? And the reason is because in 1611, when the King James translation was made, The translators wanted to honor the king who had given credence for the translation. So when they came to Jacob's in the New Testament, they translated it as James to honor the king. But there are no Jameses. There are all Yaakovs. It's interesting, though, in Romans chapter 11 is one of the places where Yaakov is not translated James, but Jacob, where it says, all Israel shall be saved when the deliverer shall come out of Zion and save Israel. James? No, that sounds weird. Jacob. And cleanse Jacob from all their, all their sin. So the word here is Jacob. So we may go back and forth between James and Jacob, but it's Jacob. Now, who was Jacob? Jacob was an incredible man of God. He was referred to by the early uh, historians as Jacob the Just. Why? Because he was so enamored with the gift of grace that God bestowed upon him that he devoted himself to prayer. 
and by just meaning Jacob the righteous one. And his righteousness was seen in his devotion to prayer. So much so that he was nicknamed Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer, his knees got all scabbed and scarred and, and uh, all rough. And they said he's just like a camel that's got to go down on its knees uh, in order to, to lie down or whatever camels do, and then to get back up. So he was a, a man of great righteousness. He was a man who was raised with Yeshua. He's Yeshua's brother. He's his younger brother. Yeshua is the firstborn. And he was like his half-brother, right? Because he was the son of Mary and Joseph, whereas Yeshua was just the son of Mary. But they were half-brothers. Uh, they were siblings. And he was not a believer in Yeshua when Yeshua conducted his ministry. Think about this. He grow, grew up with Yeshua as his older brother. And he must have been really angry at him because he never did anything wrong, you know? <laughs> I mean, he said, no, it was, it was Yeshua who did it. Come on, you know. <laughs> it couldn't have been me, you know. So in any case, it must have been really interesting. I don't know what else to say. I was going to say rough, you know, and, and a challenge. But he saw him from his earliest days, right, even through his ministry. And when you look at John chapter 7, when they go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot, his brothers are not believers, they make it very clear, the text says, but his brothers did not believe in him. So what happened that Yaakov, James, Jacob, came to believe in his brother as the Messiah? We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Yeshua rose from the dead, he appeared to crowds. He appeared to the 12, he appeared to 500, he appeared on one occasion to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but then it says, and he appeared to James, Yaakov. Isn't that kind of, I think that's kind of cool. The brother, Yeshua, I got to go see my brother. He's got to come to know me as Savior. He needs to understand, and he appears to him. And it was that resurrection appearance that radically transformed his brother to believe in him. Not only did it tra radically transform him to believe in him, but look what he calls him. Y y Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Can you think of calling your brother the Lord, the Messiah? What, how is it that he was so transformed in his understanding, his, the eyes of his heart, right? That's what we sang about. The eyes of his heart were opened. And the word he uses here is the word kurios. That word in Greek is used throughout the entirety of the Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek by some 70 Jewish rabbis 200 years before the time of Messiah in Alexandria, Egypt. I've mentioned that a number of times. But just so that we remember this, the New Testament, when it's quoting the Old Testament, more often than not, it's quoting from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew Bible. It's quoting from the Greek. And it's quoting from the Greek because most Jews didn't read Hebrew. They read Greek. It was the common language. And when the Jewish translators of the Hebrew Scriptures translated the Hebrew into Greek, and when they came not to the word Adonai, not to the word Elohim, not to the word Shaddai, Almighty, when they came to the word Jehovah, Yahweh, the sacred name of God, the unpronounceable name of God, they consistently always used the word Kurios. So what Yaakov is saying is, my brother, although he never calls him my brother, right? My brother, 
is Kurios. He is Jehovah come in the flesh. He grew up with him. And yet now he understands he's more than what his eyes had beheld when he looked upon his brother when he grew up with him. I think it's just kind of crazy to kind of think about. But look at the honor. He's a servant of God and equally a servant of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel. And Yaakov was one of the four pillars of the early believers. Peter, John, Paul, and Yaakov. That's why in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, when there's this big issue over should the Gentiles be circumcised, it is James that makes the determination. He doesn't just reveal what the group agreed to. The group never agrees to anything. James takes the knowledge that was shared. Paul begins to speak about, hey, I just came back from a, a missions assignment and all these Gentiles, man, are experiencing the Lord and they weren't circumcised. Peter is telling about his own experience with um, Cornelius, how he too experienced just what we experienced in Acts chapter 2 when I stood up and spoke and 3,000 came to faith. What happened to Cornelius, this Roman centurion, was the same thing that happened to us and he wasn't circumcised. So James took this information along with those that were saying, but one with others that said they had to be circumcised, and James makes the determination. And he says, we are not going to impose circumcision on the Gentiles, but we will ask that they, that they subordinate their conduct in a way that is accepting, accepting among the Jewish believers. But they do not, he concludes, need to be circumcised. It shows the influence, the power, and the authority Yaakov had. He is the pastor of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He is responsible for this flock. And he died in AD 62. Again, Eusebius, Josephus, Hegesippus, they all record the experience, the moment of his death. And what happened was the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were very upset with Yaakov because the believers were growing, not only numerically, but in their faith. And this was due to large part Yaakov's ministry. They wanted him to proclaim to the crowd that he has been wrong regarding who Yeshua is. And they said, we want you to stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple, the very same place the evil one brought Messiah to and said, if you jump, the angels will bear you up and the crowd will recognize you are the Messiah and you will be acknowledged as the Messiah of Israel. The pinnacle of the temple is the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount. Today, it's approximately 100 feet above the road. In the time of Yeshua, it was probably 200 or more feet above the road. And so as he got onto the pinnacle of the temple, which is right near where the steps leading up to the entranceway on the south side of the temple mount, there's these archways you can see, you go there today, and it's through those archways that were entrances and exits from the people that would go up to Jerusalem or to the temple to worship. So everybody's going to be crowded around this area. Everyone's going to be coming into the Temple Mount area. And they said, we want you to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and tell them that Yeshua is not Messiah. So Jacob, seeing the crowd that was forcing him, these leaders, to go, he goes up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple. 
and he proclaims the lordship of Yeshua, that he is the Savior, he is the Lord, and he is the one who not only died but rose again. And the leaders behind him got very agitated, very angry, and they pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple. He fell to the bottom, but he didn't die. They chased him down to the, body, uh, to the bottom, and then with clubs, they began to beat on him, and they killed him at the foot of the pinnacle of the temple. Now you ask, how was it possible that Yaakov could get up to the pinnacle of the temple and endure that kind of abusiveness? And the answer is found right here in James chapter 1. He was prepared for affliction. He was prepared for trials and tribulations. And thereby, he then begins to share with us how we can deal with our trials and tribulations and how the Jewish believers he's writing to can deal with their struggles. If you look at verse 1, he writes to the 12 tribes. He's writing to the Jewish believers. He over and over will call them my brethren. Look at verse 2. Consider it joy, my brothers. Look at verse 9. The brother in humble circumstance. Look at verse 19. My dear brothers. Over and over again, and by the way, this in a, it forms the outline for the book of James. Wherever you see my brothers, he's starting like a new section. But he was a man who was prepared for trials because he was realistic about the fact of trials and how they come into our lives. Now, I want to just take us through, if I can, in the few moments we have, from verse 1 through 18. This is not typically how I do things, but we want to get through the book. We're giving sort of a summary of ideas here. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18, and what Yaakov presents to us is, number one, he'll talk to us about the purpose of trials, He'll talk to us about the provision for trials. He'll talk to us about the perspective we should have in trials. He's going to tell us about the potential for sin in trials. And he's going to tell us about how we can have power to face our trials. So that's what I want to kind of talk about this morning. In the next, oh, I don't know, two hours? You know what I'm saying? But there's like, what, 18, 18 verses, so, you know, that gives me like a minute of verse. <laughs> you know, well, we're not going to do it that way, but look at this. Look, first of all, here, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. The first point I think that we can see here is that there's a purpose for our trials, and the purpose for our trials are beneficiary for us, beneficial for us. You say, how can trials be beneficial? Well, look what he tells us. He says, we are incomplete. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may become complete, not lacking anything. We are incomplete persons, and God's desire is for us to be made complete. And Yaakov is telling us the way to be made complete is by means of trials. Now, he's realistic. Notice, he says, he doesn't say, consider the trials pure joy. And he doesn't say, consider the pure joy you'll experience when the trial is over. He's not saying trials are not painful. He's not saying trials cannot be destructive. He's not saying that trials do not hurt. 
But he's saying, consider it joy, just like Yeshua, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, he went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He knew he was going to a painful, suffering place where he would be not only treated, mistreated by human beings, but he'd be alienated by God the Father in a means by which he could take on the sin of the world. How could he have gone to such a place joyfully? Because he knew he was encountering what God had for him. Now, this is the problem about suffering in one respect. When we think about suffering for ourselves, we ask, why is this happening to us? And oftentimes, we're never told. Oftentimes, we don't know why. Why does one person afflicted with this illness and a person over here is not? Why is one person poor and another one isn't? Why is one person born into a family that has much and another one is born into a family that has very little? Why is it we're here in the United States whereby universal standards, we have it very well, whereas those that may be born in Uganda or somewhere in one of these more quote-unquote remote places does not have it so well? The answer to that question is not given. We don't know why things may happen the way they do to us. We do know why things happened the way they did to Yeshua. We can answer that question. Why did he suffer so? Because he's taking on our sin. The problem is we can't answer the question, why do we suffer so? So what are we forced to do? We're forced to trust God with that. And what does it take to trust God in the midst of our trials in order to see he has a good purpose for us? There's something that we are to be benefited by this because we are incomplete, lacking something. But he's desired that we would be complete, lacking nothing. So the trial is meant to give something to us, not to take something away from us, he tells us. And the way to get what he has for us is to persevere. Now, this word persevere is an incredible word. It's the word hupermeno. We get the word hyper from the preface, hooper, hyper. What does it mean to be hyper? It means to be like intense, energetic, exaggerated, great, you know? So we talk about hyperactive children. They're like off the charts act, active. Well, hooper meno means hyper standing. It means standing with all of your energy and all of your might. It means doing everything you need to stand so that you stand. So perseverance is not something that's easy. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of just uh, grabbing hold of where you are and say, I am not going down. I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay the course and to move forward in trials. Because trials can teach us things that nothing else can teach us. So when I was going through a particular trial not too long ago here, I have to tell you, in about a couple of years that struggling through this, I've said many times, but I don't think I ever cried more than that in my whole life. It was almost like every morning I'd get up, I'd be calling my friends back east or my friends, and I'd be telling them what's going on, and then in the middle of the thing, I can't talk anymore because it was just so devastating. But you know what it taught me? If I look honestly about it, don't ever do that again, you know, no. What it, what it taught me was, I am a person in great need. Don't think, Gary, you got it all together, because you don't. 
Don't think you know how to handle all this stuff because you don't. In other words, it taught me the value of humility. It taught me that what I thought of myself was not what was real. What I thought of myself, that I could stand any course, I could do this, and what I found was, without God's strength, that is just not true. And so it teaches one to be humble. You know, it teaches another thing. Mary Lou and I have gone through our struggles together with uh, multiple sclerosis for over 40 some odd years. And there have been great times, you know, where the illness was not so manifested and there were other times where it's been utterly horrific to face. That's from my perspective. Mary Lou's perspective may be a little different. The whole ride has been really rough, you know. But the point is, that was, she was diagnosed back when we were teenagers. We've been married 42 years. That's 42, you know, we're 42, we're past, you know, we're in it, in it, in it. We thought we'd never be able to survive this. You know what we found out? We have been able to survive this, you know? What we thought would destroy us, maybe destroy our marriage or destroy our personal stability, did not happen, you know? So what it, what it, adversity teaches us is, it isn't really the end of the world. When we think it's the end of the world, it really isn't. And so what has it showed us? It, is, it has showed us that faith in God is a thing that can bring you through the worst of circumstances because we are moving through and have come through some difficult times. We have more things to get through, to be sure. That's because we're not complete. And all of us have things, but you know, at the end of the day, you look back, you say, you know what? We really did come through that. So it teaches us a sense of, of humility. It teaches us a reality of, of, of faith. It teaches us that we need wisdom. We need to understand what's going on. We need to get smarter. You know, so it, it drives us in positive ways. And there are other things, too, that could be thought of, uh, no question. But let me move on. Not only do we see the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials is not to destroy, but to build up. The purpose of trials is to enable us to demonstrate that with God's power, we indeed can persevere. It's meant to, to benefit us because it will humble us. It will make us more dependent upon the Lord. It will cause us to see that God really can sustain us and bring us, bring us through. You know, another thing that, that I just think about is oftentimes when we're in trial, we lose something. And then we find out that though we may lose something, it doesn't mean that we need that something that we had. We may have liked to have that something, but you know, when you feel I need this thing in order to make it through, you're really a slave to that thing. But when you get through and you lose something, and yet you're still able to manage in your life, you've just been freed from the shackles of thinking, I needed that. I really didn't, because I could still go on with my life. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe not in the same way, but not having the thing I thought I needed showed me I really didn't need it. And I put too much value in something that I ought not to have put so much value in. Consider it pure joy when you encounter the trials, because God is going to complete us and mature us through this process somehow. Second thing is, notice the provision. He says, 
but if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God. So now the second thing he tells us is, look, when you're going through trials, know that God's got a purpose for your good. When you're going through trials, our first inclination is to say, I want to escape this trial. I want to get out from under its burden. Part of the reason for that is because the day and age in which we live, or maybe I should say the culture in which we live. Because I think about when my son was in Uganda, and he was in an orphanage there. He's doing lacrosse with some of the uh, children that were in the orphanage. And he saw folks that knew the Lord that lived in terrible, terrible, terrible poverty. And he saw like a child. I don't, he, I don't know how much he saw, but he, he actually saw a child that had died because it had inadvertently had rolled into a fire or something like that. He saw the joy and sorrow that was experienced in this particular culture, in this particular world. In our culture, when things go wrong, we're always looking, what's the way out of this problem? What medication can I take to get, to get away from the pain? What doctor can I see? What expert can I talk to? What financial planner do I need? To, you know, we're always looking to get away from the painful situation. In the ancient world, pain was an accepted reality. We're not going to escape it ultimately. In some places in our world, like in Uganda, they know we're not going to escape this completely. There's going to be tragedies like this that generally might not happen here in this country. Other tragedies happen, of course. All the young people that are dying on the streets of Chicago and the South Side, mind-boggling to me. How many people die every day in just drive-by shootings and things of that sort. But the point he's making is this. When we encounter trials, our tendency is to say, God, can you just take this from me? But that's not what Yaakov tells us to do. Yaakov says, ask for wisdom. Ask for insight into what's going on. Wisdom in Scripture is a skill for living. We generally blame, it's the evil one, the devil's at work, he's doing this, that, or the other. Yaakov is saying, pray for wisdom. There may be spiritual forces at work, I do not deny that. But what Yaakov is instructing in us is, we need to be able to evaluate rightly what's really going on. We need discernment and we need insight. We need skills for living so that we can respond to the adversity in a way that is godly and in a way that is appropriate. And so the second thing he tells us is that when we are engaged in this, God will give provision. The provision is wisdom. Wisdom to understand our plight, wisdom to address it, wisdom to endure it, wisdom to deal with it. The third thing he does is he tells us to have a proper perspective on suffering and trials. Look at verse 9. He speaks of two sort of like test cases. He talks about the brother in humble circumstances, which is another way of talking about someone without the financial resources. And he tells that brother in humble circumstances because if you don't have financial resources, it's hard to deal with life in general. Everything's a trial. And in the ancient world, that was particularly so. That's why the scriptures talk so much about taking care of the widows. 
because widows had no means of support. You know, it's not like you could just go get a job and pay rent and Social Security. You didn't have anything of that. So widows were oftentimes forced to beg on the streets, forced into prostitution, or simply forced to be dependent upon family members that may or may not be able to be there for them. And so the person in humble circumstances, poor circumstances, he tells them, look, your life is going to be an ongoing trial in this sphere because of the limitations of resources. But he says, but look, have the proper perspective. Focus in on your high position. What he's talking about is their relationship to God. Because though they may have little in this world, they have much to look forward to in the world to come. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, there's a whole thing, a hypermeno, standing strongly, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So he's telling them, look, your situation in life here is a challenge, and therefore trials will probably be commensurate with that. But focus attention on your high position and calling as a child of God because the day is going to come when you will be greatly rewarded. On the other hand, he says to the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Some have said that the greatest trials people have are their wealth. The greatest trials people have, another way of talking about wealth, is their successes. What they do well in can be great trials because it can lead to great pride. It can lead to a person depending upon oneself and one's own ability when that ability will not get us through what we need to get through because we're all incomplete and we're all needy. The problem with having is the, the temptation is to think this is all there is. The problem with having is the difficulty in being generous. One pastor, Tim Keller, in his, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about in all his years of pastoring, all his years of pastoring, people have come to him with their issues and their confessions about all kinds of weaknesses. Well, it's lust, or it's adultery, or it's addictive behaviors, or it's anger, or it's, you know, whatever. He said, in all of his time, no one has ever come to him and said, Pastor, I need your help. I need your prayers because I'm greedy. No one has ever made an acknowledgement of, their, of greed being a problem. But you know what statistics tell us? That people who make $25,000 a year or less, on average, give 4% of what they make. The wealthy, on average, give less than 1% of their total earnings. You know, it's very easy to see this because if you go to some churches... If one was to take a, uh, an average of, of, one's, of the congregation's in income and was simply to tithe that, what would the income really be? Well, the whole point here is that whether it's financial success or academic success or just uh, employment success, whatever it is, those things can be great and terrible temptations. And so Yaakov reminds them, take pride in your low position. 
that in order for you to have the eternal things that God has, it necessitated that you did not look to your earthly possessions and wealth, but that you were able to look beyond that or apart from that and realize what great need you had. Remember what Yeshua said, it is more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And what Yeshua is dealing, he's giving a, a hyperbolic statement. There is no gate in Israel called the eye of the, of the, of the needle. You know, and people used to say, oh, a camel would have to bow down and kind of get through. It's difficult, but it can be done. That's not what Yeshua is saying. He's saying it's an impossibility without the grace of God because when we have, whether it's financial or otherwise, we oftentimes don't recognize our need and we don't call out to God. But when we come to recognize our need, whether rich or poor, God is there to meet our need and to provide for us. Another way of saying this is that um, the humble person, this is how it was put, the humble person should take pride in the, um, the, the grace of glory. I love this phrase. That the humble person should take pride in the grace of glory. He's going to be with heaven, in heaven. And the rich person should take pride in the glory of grace, that he was lowered so that he would know the Lord. Both need to keep God first and foremost, right? We have to ha be in perspective. Now, um, and we need to remember things are temporary. There's going to come a time when we're going to stand before the Lord. That's another thing. Oftentimes, people need to be recognized, People desire to be recognized. They want to be thanked publicly. And when they're not thanked publicly, and listen, I'll take it from, from experience, I've heard many a time, how come you didn't thank this person? How come you didn't acknowledge that person? How, you know, you acknowledge this one, but you don't do that one, you know? People want to be acknowledged. And here's the problem. Whether you're acknowledged by me or anyone else doesn't matter because we're all doing whatever we do before somebody who is watching. And this is what he says here. We're all going to stand before God, and he's going to give a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You know, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, I've been teaching through the book of Hebrews up in Santa Clarita, but look at this verse, listen to this verse, chapter 4, verse 13, nothing, that includes everything, right? Nothing includes everything. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, uh, you know, we do things thinking God's not watching or no one sees, but God sees. And therefore, whether rich or poor, we need to keep these dynamics in perspective when we encounter trials. Because whether rich or poor, God wants us to stand and wants us to be focused upon him and not to look at either our poverty or our wealth as an excuse to uh, blame the challenge that we're faced with. Now, look at verse 13. He then tells about the potential to sin in the midst of trials. All trials are temptations. All by temptations now, uh, and this is important to take note of, he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. The problem here is the use of the same English word to translate these words. 
We keep saying tempted, tempted. He's not tempted. Well, there are two different words. To be tempted can mean to be tested, which God does do. He tests us. He allows circumstances and sometimes places us deliberately in circumstances to test us, to challenge us, and to develop the qualities that we've been talking about a bit. What he does not do is what the evil one does. He does not place experiences in our lives that is meant to lure us to sin. He tests us in order to develop righteousness or reveal righteousness. That's his intention. But the evil one will lure us so that we would violate our relationship with God. So when you look at Messiah's temptation in the wilderness, it says the Spirit of God, Luke 4, says the Spirit of God drove Messiah into the wilderness so as to be tempted by the evil one. God's purpose was to put Messiah to the test so that he would be seen to be who he is, the Messiah of Israel in whom there is no sin. God allowed that test to occur so that Yeshua would be revealed to be the sinless Son of God who could take away the sin of the world. That was God's intention. The evil one's intention was to attempt to lure the, uh, the Messiah into sin so as to um, show he was not qualified or so as to disqualify him as the Messiah. One's purpose is to demonstrate righteousness. The other purpose is to cause rebelliousness to God. The test is neutral. There's nothing in and of the test itself that is either good or bad. It's neutral. It's what the intention of the tester or the tempter is. Is it to lure you or is it to prove you to be whom you are in God? So now what Yaakov is telling us is this. Every time we have a trial, it becomes a test. And every trial that comes into our lives can be used by the evil one to lure us into sin. But what we have to be cautious about is we are not to make the occasion for sin the reason for our sin. How often do we say, if so-and-so didn't invite me here, I wouldn't have done that and I wouldn't have done that. And so who's at fault? This one over here, you know. If that one didn't give me the keys to the car, I wouldn't have driven the car and I wouldn't have gotten in the accident, so it's your fault for giving me the keys. What Yaakov is telling us is there's only one and, and get this, this is maybe the most important thing said all, apart from holy, 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 you know, anything I've said. And that is this. There's only one reason why we sin. Because you want to. That's the reason you sin. Because you want to. That's what, Yeshua, that's what Yaakov says. See this? By his own evil desire. That's the reason we sin. It's not because life is so hard. It's because you want to. When a person, for example, at work is told, I want you to lie to, your, to such and so if you want to keep your job. Now you say, wait a minute, I have to lie because I can't lose my job. Here's the problem. You value your job more than you value God. And so when you choose to lie to keep your job, your desire is your job more than God's, God's approval. And that's true all the time. That's just the way it is. 
When we sin, it's because we want to. It's the evil desire that is us. And the reason we have this evil desire is because the fall in the garden. And therefore, what we need is the power of God to triumph over our own desire to sin. But what's interesting here, too, if you look at these phrases, this is all about sexuality. See how he describes it? It's an evil desire, dragged away and enticed, lusted. He says that after desire, there's conception, then there's birth, and then there's growth, and then there's death. It's interesting how often sin is depicted as adultery with a foreign God in Israel, adultery against God who has called Israel by going after false gods. It's interesting, too, because in the Brit Tadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, we're the bride of Messiah. When we have other gods, we have committed spiritual adultery against our glorious husband, the groom, to whom we are married. So that's why I think Yaakov is using this kind of language. And here's the thing. Sin is not merely breaking rules. Sin is desiring anything, even good things, more than we desire God. That's why we say the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your might. It's another way of saying there's nothing else that compares to you. You are our God. Not my job, not my wife, not my son, not my dogs, not my, my Red Sox, not my, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you like. Your God can be good things, the Red Sox, could be good things. They could be bad things as well. But it doesn't matter whether good or bad, if they take the place of God, you're on your way to sin. And that's what Yaakov is telling us. Look, when you're in, in a bad circumstance, a trial, an affliction, God's got a good purpose. He wants to complete you and me. He wants to enable us to develop qualities of steadfastness in him that we can otherwise not develop. He wants us to gain wisdom, to deal with it. He wants us to think about this, not just to, oh, it's the devil, and therefore I pray, and he'll take it away, and everything's going to be well. No, we got to think about this. we got to evaluate this. We need skill for life, and life involves trials. There's no way out of it. We will always have trials. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We're not getting away from trials. And keep a proper perspective, whether rich or poor, wherever we are in our status in life. Remember it's temporary. And remember the great grace we received that has elevated us if we're poor and the great grace we've received that has humbled us if we're wealthy. And be alert because the evil one will try to use these trials in order to cause you to sin and therefore be further alienated by the, from the living God. There is a potential for sin in every trial. And therefore, stand firm not to sin. And so where do we get the ability to do this? The last section, if I can just take a few moments. Verses 16 to 18, the power of God. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. There's a lot to say here, but let me just say this. 
Too often our focus is on the gifts and not the giver of the gifts. By the way, if you look at chapter 1, again, verse 5, he tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who is the giving God, is what it literally says, who gives generously. He describes God as a giving God, a gracious God. And now here he tells us all the good things that come are gifts from God. And the thing is, we have to be careful not to focus on the gifts and forget the giver. To focus on the things that God has given to us to bless us and not the giver. We have to remember too, every gift that we receive fades away. It all fades. I'll never forget the first time, you know, that I, I got a, I've had different kinds of instruments, but I'll never forget the first time I got a guitar. I mean, I polished that thing every day, put it in the case, you know, changed the strings, made sure there was no dust. Nobody touches that guitar, all right? And then I started playing it. And then after a while, you know, all right, I'm done. It's on the, you know, it's over here on the bed. It's standing here in the corner. It's over here, over there. Did you change the I'm Change the strings in a while. Everything fades, you know? No matter how wonderful it is. You drive a Mercedes. And I, you know, when I was in Germany and drove a Mercedes, I said, I'm never driving any other car than a Mercedes ever again. So I drive a Mazda, but I call it my, 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 my Mermazda. My Mermazda. It didn't happen. You know, I've never driven it. But you know how wonderful these cars are. I mean, you just get in and say, oh, my goodness, you know. I thought I was always driving a car. No, I was always in some kind of carriage or buggy or something that, that was powered by gasoline. But the point is this. It all fades. It all fades. Uh, I, I'm uh, sorry to, to bring this up, Dan, but I was driving down Ventura Boulevard, and a guy on the right, was passing me and he had this beautiful vet, you know, and he came across and somebody was turning in front of the car in front of me, turned and bang, and done. Now, you know, I'm sure insurance took care of it all, but done, everything fades away. You know, Peter says everything will burn with intense heat. It's all going away, you know. So what do we focus on? The wonderful things, and these are great things. Wonder, and they don't have to be things. Hey, listen, I love going down to Malibu and just looking out on the water. You know, one day, the Messianic age, I just don't understand this at all, but the Messianic age, it says that all the seas are gone. I said, what's, I can't sail in the Messianic age. There's no seas. We can't surf. What's going on? You know, but it says even the beauty of sunsets, all of that stuff is going to go. It's, it, Isaiah says that the earth will toddle to and fro like a drunken man and will be no more. It says he's going to roll up the world like a scroll. That's it. Done. We go to the new heavens and new earth, whatever that is going to be. It's all going to fade. It's all going to end or be transformed, whatever God's going to do. But what is is not going to be. In some ways, we're glad about that, right? Because our Corruptible is going to be put on incorruptible. We like that. But we have to be careful that it's the gift giver who is preeminent and not the gifts. And one last thing, and get this, and this is where I'll close. It says, and he chose to give us birth that the word of tr through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Where's the power come from? You got to have the new birth. It starts at the very beginning, birth. You know, we came into this world, we were born, and now he's telling us, you want power to deal with the world in which you were born to? You need to be born again, and you need to be born 
by the truth. You need to be born not by some philosophical ideas that may get you through life. You need to be born again not by having financial independence. You need to be born again by the Spirit of God who alone can breathe on us and give us life. And that then makes the word of truth alive to us. Not just an academic exercise, but alive in the very inner recesses of our hearts that is lived out, fleshed out by the actions we perform. And so he tells us here, if you want the power in order to stand, in order to maintain perspective, in order to avoid sin, in order to benefit, you must be born again. It starts where it starts. <laughs> it begins where it began, with birth. And birth by the power of the birthing, giving creator God. We need to turn our attention to him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of Yaakov. We thank you, Lord, for his instruction to us, a man who had endured great trials and here tells us we can endure them too. Father, we pray most of all, of all that was said, that we would experience the new birth in fullness of power and conviction. May we experience the very breath of the mighty Spirit of God, that he would breathe on us, make us new, make us alive, make us holy unto you, O Lord. And we pray that whatever trial we go through, and all of us go through different things. For some people, this thing over here is not much of a trial, but it is for that person, and vice versa. Trials are what they are to each and every one of us, and therefore we need to consider them. But Lord, may we trust you like Yeshua trusted you. And while we may not have all the explanations, Lord, we do know that you intend a completing work to get done in our lives through this adversity. You intend for us to gain wisdom. You would want us to focus on your grace and the rewards that are yet to come. You would want us to avoid sin in the process. And you would have us draw on your power and strength to do what is right. So Lord, we want to put our faith in action. And may we begin by facing the challenges of life by your empowerment and by your grace. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.